This is Transparency, a podcast by Gender Dysphoria Alliance, hosted by Aaron Kimberly and Aaron Terrell. Each week we'll be joined by people who have personal or professional experience with gender dysphoria and physical transition. We'll also discuss how our trans experiences relate to the concept of gender identity. Join us for a compassionate yet heterodox approach to the question of trans. Alex Byrne is a professor of philosophy at MIT. A few years ago, he started working on philosophical issues relating to sex and gender, and he just published a book on the topic called Trouble with Gender, Sex Facts, Gender Fictions. And I do have to say, uh, despite Alex's hefty academic CV, the book is entirely accessible and actually quite entertaining. Um, So here's our conversation with Alex Byrne. Welcome back to Transparency, everyone. I'm Aaron Kimberly here with my co-host, Aaron Terrell, and uh, welcoming our guest, Alex Byrne. Thanks very much for joining us, Alex. Aaron and Aaron, thanks very much for having me. So we, we wanted to bring you on to talk about uh, the book that you just published. Um, before we talk about some of the contents of the book, I'd be really interested to hear about what it was like to have it published um, it's very, con- you know, in, in today's landscape, very controversial topic on sex and gender. Um, so maybe we could start there. Right. So I'm an academic philosopher and I became interested in issues about sex and gender in maybe 2017 uh, or so. That was the time when the junior philosopher, Rebecca Tuval was spectacularly cancelled over an article she published uh, called In Defense of Transracialism. That was uh, shortly after uh, Caitlyn Jenner had come out on the cover of Vanity Fair and um, Rachel Dolezal had, uh, had had been exposed as a, as a white woman LARPing as a black one. And uh, Rebecca's article... It was a it, it was a good article. It was published in the, the leading journal of feminist philosophy called Hypatia. And it was very progressive. The whole point was to that, that we should extend the same courtesies to uh transracial people like Rachel Dolezal as we do to transgender people like like Caitlin Jenner. So you might have expected that this would have just received you know, praise from her colleagues, but instead there was a storm of protest. And um, even two members of uh, Rebecca's own PhD uh, thesis committee turned on her and denounced the article. Anyway, so there was that. And then a year or so later, the British philosopher, Kathleen Stock. Have you had her on the pod, by the way? Some we have, yeah. We have, yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, she's been on so many podcasts. Anyway, so then Kathleen, Kathleen waded into the debate um, in then taking place in the UK over the reform of the 2004 Gender Recognition Act, which would have, the reforms would have essentially ushered in a version of self-ID in the UK. And she was raising some concerns about that in this very tentative, mild-mannered way. And she uh, got a lot of pushback from her colleagues in the in the philosophy profession. And things snowballed, and she got more and more 
um, harassment, um, not just from activists, but from uh, her fellow philosophers. And she received the, the Order of the British Empire, one of the, you know, the gongs that the then Queen uh, dishes out every year in uh, uh, 2021, I think. And that prompted this open letter from philosophers, professional philosophers, denouncing Kathleen Stock and all her works and essentially demanding that the Queen never do something this terrible uh, again. And, uh, and then eventually, um, I think maybe at the end of 2021, Kathleen eventually resigned from the University of Sussex, where she was, uh, she'd been a philosophy professor from, for, for a number of years. I mean, that was after about three years of, of harassment. And uh, meantime, I had been, anyway, this greatly disturbed me um, as uh, an indication of how things were going in, in the philosophy profession. After all, you know, you might naively have thought that philosophy is that one subject where you can talk about whatever you like and uh, propound the most outrageous and controversial and potentially offensive ideas, you know, provided it's all done in in good faith, you know, without fearing censure, censure from your colleagues. Anyway, so I had like waded into this debate and I, I, I'd written a few things for a popular audience, uh, first of all, about whether sex is binary and whether sex is socially constructed and so on. And then in 2020, I published a paper called Are Women Adult Human Females? Maybe we'll talk about this issue uh later in the pod but uh that caused a huge controversy and the editor-in-chief of the journal in question ended up resigning and another consequence of the fallout was that uh, i became i think the the most published author in peter singer's new journal which has started in 2021 the Journal of Controversial Ideas. So I was like forced to publish there because no, no one else would um, publish my my stuff on sex and gender. Anyway, so that's, sorry, that's, that's all by way of um, uh, background. And then, so then after I'd done all that, I thought, well, gosh, I really have a book in me on this, on this topic. I mean, a trade book, a book for a general audience. Um, there's so much confusion, so many mistakes on the internet that I think I'm I'm in a good position to correct. Not to mention the many mistakes, as I saw it, uh, uh, made by my colleagues in philosophy. So I cobbled together a book book proposal, shopped it round Oxford University Press, which is probably the most prestigious academic press in the world, uh, with whom I'd published a book before, and had a very good experience with them. Uh, enthusiastically accepted it, uh, at least at first. And then um, when I was working, so then I started to write it in uh, 2021. And simultaneously, uh, the philosopher Holly Lawford-Smith, who teaches at the University of Melbourne in, in Australia, um, was... Uh, in the middle of publishing her book, Gender Critical Feminism, with Oxford University Press. And when activists got wind that OUP were publishing that, 
that produced the inevitable storm of protest and a couple of open letters, you know, wagging the collective finger at OUP and telling them never uh, to publish a book like this again. Anyway, so Holly's book was eventually published, uh, but then she ran into much more serious problems with her second book um, with OUP called Sex Matters. I was also running into other problems with um, an article about pronouns that, in fact, I, I, I think I, I sent to you guys um, uh, when I was when I uh, when I was writing it. This was an invited article for some Oxford University Press handbook, which they declined to publish at the end of the day, and that also ended up in the Journal of Controversial Ideas. I mean, that, that whole story was just completely insane. Anyway, so all that was going on, and I was working on my my book manuscript and thinking, yeah, this is great. I'm really, you know, um, uh, really clearing some some things up for the um, for the uh, general public. It wasn't intended to be some, you know, political tract or anything like that. I wasn't taking a stand on the issue of trans women in sports or gender affirming care or anything like that. Um, but anyway, uh, just to come to the end of the story, in 2022, I submitted um, the first draft of the book manuscript to OUP, and then some months later they said they, they just wouldn't be publishing it because it failed to, to treat the subject with something like sufficient seriousness and, and respect. So, uh, yeah, it's the most bizarre story. It's the most exciting thing that's ever happened to me as an academic, which maybe shows you something about how unexciting the academic life is <laughs> it, it, not serious the, the you're not dealing with it uh with the, the seriousness and respect it deserves i think what they really mean is um not dealing with it with, with the sanctity uh that it no, deserves that is, yeah that is exactly is, right no yeah exactly they kind of right. subtext yeah. there yeah. um yeah, but yeah, speaking that's exactly of, right i mean the oup has absolutely no problem publishing books on this topic which do treat the subject with the uh approved amount of, of sanctimony That's right. sure. and i mean of course it's significant that um uh the two books coming out of the uk the two trade books coming out of the uk on the like vaguely gender critical side namely helen joyce's trans and kathleen stock's material girls uh i think both of those books just found one publisher. There was certainly no no bidding war or anything like that. It's not as if publishers were um, crawling over themselves to uh, to publish these books, although both of them turned out to be extremely successful at the at the end of the day. And Holly's book, and what yeah, so what happened with Holly's book, Sex Matters? So OUP finally published Gender Critical Feminism. They declined to publish Sex Matters uh, shortly after they cancelled my book. And in contrast to me, I, I didn't push back at all. I was just like totally beaten down by that at, at that point. It's just pointless protesting. But uh, Holly did push back and she essentially forced, with the help of the UK's free speech union, Oxford University Press, to publish Sex Matters. 
um, I, I assume legal threats of some kind were were made. But I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous when a a storied university press is forced over the over some you know the barrel of a legal gun to publish a book. I, I mean, this must be the first time it's ever happened. I'm sure how we got here will be the topic of many books for many that's decades right, to come. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I did want, well, one of the things I wanted to do in the book was at least set down in print some of the story about uh, the sorts of crazy things that have been happening in my own discipline over the last few years. Um, we, we should have some some record of that for posterity in the hope that this might pre prevent similar things from happening again. It is remarkable that, um, yeah, in fields, um, the, the most remarkable field, in my opinion, is that of developmental psychology, that they're uh, propagating um, this this phenomenon uh, that we're living through. Another one is historians. Um, and then and then, as you point out rightfully in the first chapter of your book, is how ridiculous it is, ridiculous it is that philosophy isn't pushing back or at least, you know, um, you know, taking a taking a critical uh, um, approach to the the phenomenon, because like that's kind of what what philosophy is there to do is to ask these difficult questions about things we're taking for granted, and and we shouldn't um, we should be able to kind of yeah deep dive into them. like you, you write a few examples of of um, uh, you know kind of hot button topics that philosophers just don't shy away from discussing, but this one is is yeah completely off of limits. No, well that is yeah that. That is an ex an excellent point, and that that actually raises um, raises something of a puzzle because uh, typically when philosophers get into trouble because they're discussing controversial issues and they're taking taking controversial positions, uh, then the rest of the philosophy profession rallies round to support them. So. Um, Peter Singer is a good example, the guy who started with two other people, the Journal of Controversial Ideas, probably most famous philosopher in the world, I would have thought at this point, famous for his work on animal rights, among other things. And Singer has defended uh, the policy of euthanizing disabled infants, uh, which is obviously extreme, extremely controversial. Um, and people have protested his talks and tried to get him cancelled and so on. But all this is coming from outside the profession. Within the profession, uh, he is defended. But so you, you so with Singer as your model or example, you would have thought the same thing would have happened to philosophers like Kathleen Stock, that they would have been vilified outside the profession. But Within the profession, everyone would have been supportive, even, even if they disagreed. I mean, numerous philosophers disagree with Singer, but think, you know, he's arguing in good faith and he has points that deserve to be addressed. And so we'll support him. But that didn't happen in the case of, uh, of Kathleen. Or yourself. Well, uh, what do you it think? Hasn't, has, didn't happen in the case of, of, of Holly either. What, what do you think the difference is? Well, I think I do have a theory about what the difference is. Uh, uh, the, the difference is that the, uh, so just take um, Singer's views on 
euthanizing infants. So that pe people who are interested in these sorts of questions, what we should do, what we shouldn't do, what's permissible to do, what the right and wrong thing uh, to do is, uh, these work. The, these philosophers work in uh, ethics, a sub-discipline of philosophy, ethics or moral, moral philosophy. And that discipline is like any other, or almost any other discipline of philosophy, in that all views are welcomed. You can have any view you like about ethics and be an ethicist and go to conferences and um, have your papers published and be secure in the knowledge that you're not going to be shamed or shunned by your colleagues. So, for example, um, you can uh, obviously a dispute about the permissibility of abortion. Is support, you know, is abortion akin to murder, or is it more like, um, you know, cutting your fingernails? And you can publish papers in philosophy um, defending the permissibility of abortion, or you can publish papers in 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 philosophy. Uh, saying that it's impermissible, that it is akin to uh, akin to murder, uh, or you can um, you can think that uh, morality derives from God, that the moral law is really God's law. That's uh, one one view you can have. No one's going to shame you for that. Another view you can have is that uh, morality is total bullshit. It's just like it's a complete fairy story. Um, it isn't true that. Uh, uh, Hitler ought not to have killed all those Jews because it's not true that uh, anyone ought to do anything, morally speaking. Uh, that's all fine. Um, okay, so so that's ethics. But then when it comes to sex and gender, that is for uh, historical reasons the province of this subdiscipline of philosophy called feminist philosophy. And feminist philosophy is more or less unique in that it doesn't have this anything goes, everyone is welcome uh, ethos. In order to be a paid up feminist philosopher, you need to be, broadly speaking, sympathetic with the, with the feminist cause. It's not that you have to like sign a piece of paper saying uh, that everyone lives under patriarchy or something, but you have to be like broadly broadly sympathetic with um uh with feminist thought and with and with and with feminist aims and this the fact that that branch of of, of philosophy um has uh, sort of implicit qualifications or standards for who counts as oh my god i see your cat's tail <laughs> sorry very impressive <laughs> oh sorry you know, uh, sorry slightly, bye -bye. slightly. <laughs> Very impressive. I should have let my own cat in. Um, the fact that um, uh, that this subdiscipline of philosophy comes with a sort of built-in in-group, out-group perspective makes it just um, prone to um, uh, being extremely unwelcome to people who are who are not seen to be you know on board with the with the current with the current orthodoxies so so i think that's the that that's the asymmetry really
and there's no other branch of philosophy. Of no, sorry, there's no other branch of philosophy that has that kind of. Yeah, there is. No, yeah, stance. there is no other branch of philosophy that's that that's like that. That sort of has a, a kind of agenda. So, philosophy of religion uh, is another example. Uh, you can be a philosopher of religion and be a hardcore Christian or a hardcore Muslim, or you can be a hardcore atheist. Right. Christopher Hitchens, if he'd been a philosopher, would have taken a keen interest in, in the philosophy of religion. And he would have been published in various philosophy of religion journals or gone to various philosophy of religion conferences. And even in the, in the philosophy of race, um, it, it's true you don't, um, you know, if you're white supremacist, you wouldn't be welcome in the... You wouldn't be welcome in the in the philosophy of race, but if you if you thought that race was a biological matter, uh, that that you know the difference between whites and blacks and Asians has got nothing to do with the society or how people are regarded or how they regard themselves, but something to do with your ancient ancestry, um, then uh, this is not grounds for cancellation at all. In fact, some very prominent philosophers of race hold exactly that view. Whereas in philosophy, if you hold the, the parallel view about gender, namely that, you know, women are adult human females and um, men are adult human males, uh, this is regarded as, well, A, it's regarded as obviously false, and B, it's regarded as uh, a sign that you're some kind of bigot. And of course, the, 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 the irony is that I, I, I would have thought that the sort of biological view of, of gender is actually a lot easier to defend than the, than the biological view of, of race. But they, it is not a respectable position at all in, among academic philosophers. But it, it, is it, is it, is it, it's remarkably new, um, correct? Because, okay, so we... It's kind of ironic, or not not that ironic is the right word here, but but that that um, these ideas have come forth from um, uh, feminist philosophy, which is also where um, uh, where radical feminism comes from as well. Correct. Yeah. And so these, I mean, these two kind of contradictory ideas that are in our modern culture butting such strong heads are essentially kind of both sprung forth from the same yeah oh sorry what 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 contradictory ideas do you that do you uh so radical feminism that that you know like yeah. like uh, um much uh, kathleen stock's not a radical feminist but the you know basically the premise of material girls right that the the fact you know being a woman is 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 bound up in the material reality of being female right and so right, right. so that that being one uh one not really philosophical i guess yeah philosophical position another being the 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 gender um framework which doesn't really have a coherent um definition but they're both kind of facets of the same really kind of um yeah that's right that's I'm not sure right the question is there no i think well um yeah let me say something like re related to that so i i think um, 
I mean, take take Simone de Beauvoir's famous book, The Second Sex, uh, which was published in in 1949. So it is it is called The Second Sex. So you you, you might expect that um, the author is not going to have any issue with women being female. And even though a sort of popular interpretation of Beauvoir, um, this is Judith Butler's interpretation, is that she she thought that uh, you didn't have to be female to be a woman. That's, that's supposedly the point of her famous line that um, uh, one is not born a woman, one rather becomes one. Um, even though that's a popular, uh, popular interpretation of Beauvoir, I don't think it's it's right. But you do get in in Beauvoir, even though she she does take biology very seriously, but you you get in her the the sort of second wave feminist idea that um, beyond uh, beyond the obvious anatomical differences, there really isn't much difference between human males and human females. So there is this strand in feminist philosophy uh, which uh, downplays biology a lot. Now, you can, you can hold that view that biology is not very important, uh, you know, beyond the fact that like, females give birth um, and that males have typically have some dangly bits that females don't and they're just a bit maybe a little bit stronger and a little bit taller uh, you can you can hold that view sort of consistently with the view that uh, a woman is an adult human female and a man is a, is a human adult human male um, but since you really are putting um, biology on the on the back burner the the downplaying of biology I think, does make it a lot easier to think that, well, when it comes to gender, men and women, this really isn't a matter of biology at all. It's more a matter of psychology or society, how you're treated or how you how you view yourself or something like that. Um, so it's a battle that yeah, really I mean, I started, the... you know, started in in academia. Um, I remember when women's studies departments of universities started switching over to gender studies departments and, and the emergence of queer theory. So, fe you know, feminist theory and queer theory were being battled out often within the same university departments, but it's trickled out into society now and being battled out on, on, on the streets and in social media and has become quite vicious in that, in, in those domains and is now being codified in because of queer theory, at least in Canada is being codified into law and policy. Um, and has completely displaced our understanding of rare conditions like intersex conditions and gender dysphoria. And that's where I, where we enter into the conversation as people with gender dysphoria who have medically transitioned and are in sort of the caught in the crossfire between these warring philosophical factions while the realities of our conditions are being obscured. 
Yes, that's right. I mean, I, I think it, it's extremely unfortunate. I mean, you know, this, of course, isn't just an academic exercise and there's a lot of potential collateral damage. So in the case of <clears throat> people with with intersex conditions or disorders of, of sex development, um, yeah, obviously, I mean, as as you know, this is a like a grab bag of of very very different uh, medical conditions where the the normal developmental pathway, either on the male side or the female side, is uh, somehow disrupted or isn't functioning as evolution designed it to function. Um, sometimes these conditions are uh, are pretty harmless, but um, and, uh, sometimes they're actually life-threatening. Um, you know, often they can cause a lot of uh, a lot of distress. It's you know a, a, you've got a comp complex set of medical and psychological problems here to be managed. Um, what you don't have, or what I what I don't think you you should have, is any kind of. Um, social movement or special identity group that you know needs its own flag or or anything like that and uh neither do you do you want people to use you as some kind of battering ram in the in the culture wars as of course so 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 often happens and um especially in the in in the transgender case uh Typically, I, I, actually, I think that might not be the case for maybe Aaron Kay, if I'm remembering right. But but um, typically, you know, people suffering from gender dysphoria who who transition do not have an, an intersex condition or a disorder of sex development or something like that. Although sometimes the DSD can, you know, for understandable reasons, grease the wheels and make it easier to uh, to transition. Um, but nonetheless, like the fact that DSDs and transsexuality have got almost nothing to do with each other, they are so connected in the in the public conversation. It's bizarre. Um, yeah, you would think um, you would think that we would be seeking greater clarity about these conditions, uh, not you know, but because they're being used as you say, you know, used in these philosophical movements, we're actually seeing more and more confusion and misinformation about these conditions. And I've seen that within not just the trans community. I mean, it, it, in the early 2000s and prior to that, I remember butch lesbians talking about gender identity disorder. And there was, there was a grounding in reality about that experience within the lesbian community. And I've seen yeah. that completely obscured by, you know, these, this philosophical battle and something similar I've seen happen within intersex forums that intersex people are starting to be queered and I, you know, adopting an intersex identity or like a non-binary queer identity as a result of their medical conditions. And that hadn't been the case prior in prior years. It was, it had been very offensive to most intersex people to be regarded as like a third sex or, or a non-binary sex. Most intersex people do identify as, as a binary sex. 
Right, right. And I, I mean, I think that that is in fact true that 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 most most so-called intersex people are like clearly either male or or female, regardless of whether whether they identify as such. Um. So, what was the process like writing this book? I mean, you seem to. Have- interview a lot of people and wh- where did you start that process yeah well i mean i learned to actually i learned a lot from um from podcasts uh, including yours um because you know if you're doing it i mean i did actually talk talk to a bunch of experts and some trans people and activists and and whatnot but um and there's no there's no substitute for for doing that. But these days, you really can learn a, like a huge amount from podcasts. You just like listen to these you know very unusual people talking about their experiences. So that so that was uh, that was a very important component of of the research. And then of course I I read a lot. Um, uh, which I, I definitely deserve some medal for, because as I'm sure you know, a lot of the uh, a lot of the scholarly writing on sex and gender is um, headache-inducing. Put it put it mildly, um, especially the queer theory branch of it. Yeah, Butler, no, Butler is almost yeah. incomprehensible. That's yeah, that's that's right. I don't, I really don't understand why it is so unclear, but. Um, but I have the, my own hypothesis about that. Oh, what is your? Oh, I'd be interested to hear that. What is what is your hypothesis? Well, I I think maybe this sounds really really wacky, but I I think it was intentional on Butler's part to make it that in, incomprehensible. I remember having reading through it, and I was a very dedicated student. I really wanted to understand it, and had a dictionary at my side at all times, and I deciphered it word for word. I think there's something about the effort that it takes to learn it. And I think there's a reason why she relied so heavily on um, like psychoanalysis. I think that there was a very deliberate attempt to use language to shape thought um, beyond just the idea she was representing. I think the, the actual way that she constructed the language itself is part of its impact on the reader yeah that's right and then there is that uh there is that habit uh which you find in 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 butler and um i guess in 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 queer theory quite frequently which although although not really in in analytic philosophy of taking psychoanalysis very very seriously as if it's some you know confirmed established psychological theory really helps you understand how the mind works yeah i think it was i think it was meant to influence the mind beyond just a presentation of ideas and and buy into those ideas and, you know i think that she was using neuro neuro linguistic tools in the crafting of of how she constructed the theories yeah yeah it's uh it, it it's interesting how um butler like remains a rock star figure in in certain circles while simultaneously being a sort of hate figure on the on the gender critical side 
Um, so, so I, you know, so she's like super polarizing. And she has a book coming out, Who's Afraid of Gender? And she seems very, from interviews, more recent interviews I've seen with her, she seems, it seems to all be going according to her plan. Like she seems very happy with with how it's all going and, and the way it's being written <laughs> into, right. into law. So it, it doesn't seem to be like, I see it as a train wreck, you know, train completely going off the rails, but she doesn't seem to interpret it that way. She seems quite happy with how it's all unfolding in society. Yeah. And the funny thing is that, um, uh, you know, originally um, in um, gender trouble, which was, when was that? 1990, that uh, she was very, um uh her, her views then were very inhospitable to the idea that you know everyone has an innate gender identity which may or may not align with their sex body and so on i mean she thought all that was uh, nonsense what conclusions did you come to uh reading or writing your book did you kind of change your mind on anything um uh uh, yeah, I well, I don't know whether I changed my mind exactly, but I certainly formed some uh, some some new opinions uh, when I was writing the book. I mean, I'd, I'd already written the uh, women, adult, human, females paper, and uh, written some other stuff defending my view against objections. So I think when I was working that up that material up for the book, trying to make it more comprehensible to a general audience. Um, I just became more more convinced that I was right <laughs> after all. Um, but there, and then um, there's a chapter on on gender identity, and I think writing that uh, helped clear up a few confusions in my mind about about gender identity. I think I have a more developed view of what what's going on and what's what was right and what was wrong about uh, sorry, what's right and what's wrong about different conceptions of of gender identity and then the the last oh yeah then right there are a couple of uh of other chapters where i think i i learned quite a bit by writing them so there's a chapter on on patriarchy and then there's a chapter on identity and yeah i i, I enjoyed working through both of those topics um I think there's a lot to say about identity, which is always banded around these days as if we know what we're talking about. And I, I, I think, at least to my satisfaction, I sort, sorted out a few things in that in that final chapter. Did anything surprise you in that process? Um, I think my, my main surprise, I don't even know if it's surprise, but... I am I am constantly struck by how experts in academia, or in in particular in in philosophy on sex and gender, disagree with basically everything I I say in the in the book. So it's very I mean to me it's just like yeah it's kind of common sense really. It's nothing nothing terrible you know nothing terribly surprising. I mean we know all this stuff already. Uh, but not not according to the not according to the experts. Every, well, yeah, almost everything in, in in that book is wrong according to received wisdom in the in the academy. 
I found that I um, I entirely um, agreed with it. I, originally, I was going to skip the first, I think, three chapters. Like, what is gender? What is, or what is yeah. a woman, basically? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I, I was like, oh, I, I, I mean, I was spending years talking about this stuff, reading about this stuff. That's right. <laughs> but your style of writing is like so like fun and interesting and it was never it was not like oh this is tedious like i know this stuff it was very it was engaging to read and there were oh, thank you. i can't think of examples specifically but there were like times where i was uh, definitely learned a lot and was surprised by certain things i was reading um but the the really interesting ones for me were yeah the, the chapter on uh core gender identity where you essentially argue that 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 doesn't exist correct is that the your your stance well it's that, the core it's the core so so the, the funny thing about gender identity is that um, it certainly wasn't it certainly wasn't conceived in sin. the 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 original idea, which is basically the sense of knowing to which sex one one belongs, um, is uh, an extremely useful notion which deserves to have like a phrase of its own. And gender identity is. is is an excellent phrase for that um and just having that notion in your toolkit um uh, opens up all sorts of questions about about child child development when do children um realize that they're either male or female and you know psychologists have um devoted a lot of research to this very question and come up with all sorts of interesting facts about when when children realize that they're male or female and what what notions they have of um what it means to be male or female you know whether you can change your sex by changing your clothing or changing changing your behavior when do they when do they realize that once you um that you're stuck with the sex that you're born with that you know if you're a um uh, if you're a male boy, then you're grow you're going to grow up to be a male uh, a male adult. So all that was that that happened in the 1960s, due to the psychiatrists. The original notion was due to the psychiatrists Robert Stoller and uh, Ralph Greenson in California, and so this was um, an advance. This was a sort of conceptual advance in in psychology and. We shouldn't be throwing out that notion of of gender identity, which Stoller called core gender identity. But then, um, the the notion got changed over the years to the one we we know and love today, and which is sort of dominant in uh, the media. Which is some um, well, it's very hard to explain what it is exactly, but it's some kind of innate sense of what gender you belong to, which uh, can cause gender dysphoria when it's uh, misaligned with your with your sexed body, and that uh, notion I think is is a complete myth. So the the original notion, the Stoller Greenson notion of core gender identity, that is absolutely genuine and useful, and shouldn't be junked. The uh, the more recent conception uh, is is mythical. There's there's really no such thing. Yeah. That's not the explanation of gender identity. It's not universal. I mean, I think it's where the, the, this is where, well, this is, as if you like, the the philosophical underpinning of 
of gender affirming care. So if you think that everyone has a gender identity and cause gender dysphoria uh, when it's mismatched with your sex body and further um, people are in a privileged position with respect to their own their own gender identity. The best way of knowing what gender identity someone has is to is to ask them. Then you've you've basically got you've basically got gender affirming care. Uh, well, especially mm -hmm. if you add add in the idea, the extra idea that gender identity is pretty much fixed. You can't change it. So Chris, you gender have, so you have sorry, go ahead. I cut you off. Go yeah, ahead. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. That, uh, so so then you have some some kid or, or some adult who says, okay, you know, let's say some biological male who says, uh, well, I have a, I have a female gender identity. Okay. So because we're all authorities on our gender identity, this person is right. So he really does have a female gender identity and he has gender dysphoria. Well, what's the cause of that? It's the misalignment of his gender identity with his sex body. And then, um, if we assume that you can't change someone's gender identity, the only option left uh, for treatment is to is to change change the body, and that's that's gender affirming care essentially. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can find Diane Ehrenstadt saying saying more or less what I just said. Yeah, yeah, she has some wacky ideas, but you know, I agree with you that that branch of research is really important and and valid and i mean it was that terminology gender identity was coined before our current distortions of what gender meant it really meant sex identity gender and oh, sex yeah, were no, synonymous yeah, exactly right yeah they, they were yeah, the same exactly they, right. they meant the same thing and so when some people had the mistaken belief um of which sex they were, that was called gender identity disorder, which made sense. It had clarity in relation to gender identity. That's gender, right, yeah. gender identity just meaning a person knows what sex they are. Gender identity disorder meaning you have a mistaken belief, and that that all that terminology all seemed really clear before queer theorists started changing the meanings of various words. Right, right, um, and it, it's also a an illustration of how of how the word gender has just been just been responsible for so much so much confusion so and why i think you should never never use it to mean anything other than sex as in male and male and female because as you said uh the original use of gender identity just meant sex identity the um, the feeling of belonging to to one set to one sex or another, or the sense of knowing that you're either uh, that you're either male or female. That's what it meant originally. But now, um, without any change in the terminology, uh, because uh, gender has come on has, has come to take on all these other meanings, and there's a like a, a particularly obscure sense of gender on which it means well man or woman or genderqueer or non-binary or agender or blah 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 it's not really clear how to 
continue, but at any rate, you can certainly continue supposedly for um, uh, for quite a while, giving examples of all these other genders. And in in that sense of the word uh, uh, gender, uh, gender identity is now not the sense of knowing that you're male or female, but the sense of knowing that you're ma a man or a woman or a gender or non-binary or gender queer or whatever. Um, and uh, it it's it, it's just not not very clear at all what the word gender in this uh, in this new sense really amounts to, and whether you know at least it's somewhat clear what being non-binary amounts to, but um, it's certainly far from clear that you should lump together being non-binary with say being a woman as if they, these are the same sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And now, Certainly I mean, now gender yeah. identities now can be anything, right? I mean, gender identities yeah. can now be, a, you know, a cat, a cake, you know, there, there's now, yeah. you know, thousands of all these new neo pronouns and, and gender identities that aren't even human gender identities, which are really just facets of a, per, of a personality and, and creativity. But, a, but it concerns me the way these... Yeah philosophical concepts are being written into law. So for example, our conversion therapy law here in Canada says that you're not supposed to ever change anyone's gender identity, which, but right. now gender identity means a kid can identify as a cat. So how does that apply to conversion therapy law when we're not allowed to tell a child that they're not actually a cat? Right. And also if you, I mean, if you take the more, the, 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 the less controversial examples of gender identities, like you know, um, having having a non-binary identity, um, I think it's I think it's clear that you can that that this can be changed. So you know, there are certainly people who didn't have a non-binary identity and now have a non-binary identity, or conversely, people had a non-binary identity and then, as it were, grow out of it and just. <laughs> Don't uh, don't say they're non-binary anymore. Judith Butler, of course, is 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 non-binary. Of course, she uh, is. Exactly what this means <laughs> is extremely obscure. <laughs> well, the the first it's legally like, non-binary yeah. person in the United States um, was such because of a detransition that male to female regretted transition, didn't feel that he could go back to to being male. And so uh, they're with their lawyers decided, well, maybe we could fight for you to have a non-binary identity placed That's on your, right. on your identification. That's right. Um, I, I, I have heard that the, uh, the non-binary craze is maybe peaking and declining. I don't know. I'm sure you guys are uh, closer to the coal face than I am. So um is there it is that right have we have we passed the non-binary peak i i don't know because i think more and more these categories um uh i'm sure to uh judith butler's um pleasure get more and more blurred there there's so it's like there's there's much less concreteness between any kind of uh these identities in my view like um uh i, I spend a lot of time just kind of like reading the um kind of trans forums and whatnot to get a sense of what mm -hmm. um you know these these uh young people how, how they conceptualize themselves and their experience and it's very 
everything is there's there's nothing concrete about it um so a lot so people who are you know otherwise non-binary also identify themselves as transsexual which you know we used to understand as like the, the more concrete version of of transition but they just i, I don't know the, the the language just seems to be more and more grab baggy so it's hard to um it, it's hard to really tell from my from my vantage right. point I'm also right. not sure I mean, how I much is say- changing within the younger population because I mean they've been fed this stuff through our public school system, through the internet. They don't know any different. I mean, we're old enough to remember a time prior to these ideas, but for the for kids, you know, teenagers now or or young adults, this is all they know. This is their understanding of reality and identity and and the trans experience. So I worry most about them as adults are waking up to what's happened and, and the deception that's happened, I worry about an entire generation of kids. How do we get through to them and, and just their faith in their faith in our institutions. If any of them do wake up realizing all my teachers lied to me, all my doctors lied to me, all the adults in my life have lied to me about these things. Right. I mean, it might be that, um, the, the non-binary uh, phrase is, uh, for the most part, pretty harmless. Uh, I mean, it's like mildly irritating to the rest of us who have to bother to remember uh, they, them pronouns or, or, or whatnot. But so long as it's not hastening people along some medical pathway that they have no, no, no reason to, to go down, uh, maybe not very much, not very much damage has been done. I mean, what's weird, uh, I never quite understood about um, the the pronoun business here. Judith Butler is a good uh, example. So I, I mentioned this in the in the book. So can't remember when this was, not that long ago. Uh, Judith declared that she was she was non-binary, and you know she's fine as far as I know, with, uh, with she, her, uh, pronouns, but of course you will, uh, you will have noticed that if you're like remotely progressive, you will only use they, them pronouns for Judith Butler. It's like some faux pas to use she, her for Judith. But then, but Butler herself said, yeah, well, you know, I, I discovered this category of non-binary and then I realized, oh, well, you know, obviously that's me and I, I've been non-binary from, from day one. Um, but there's no indication at all that like Butler was harmed or disrespected or felt offended or anything like that by being referred to with she, her pronouns back in the day. I mean, this has happened like thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of times. You know, she's everyone talks about Judith Butler and gender trouble cited tens of thousands of times. Uh, so why why even bother switching to to they them pronouns? I I just don't I don't get it. The whole and of course they're third person pronouns. So typically, one would use them when the person themselves is is out of earshot. So who you know who who gives a crap whether um, we refer to, or you know why should Judith care whether we refer to her using uh, she her or or they them especially when she can't hear us? It's like the most baffling thing. 
I don't think she does care. I think it's all rhetorical. No, okay, maybe she doesn't care, but certainly some. No, that's right. No, maybe she doesn't care. Um, uh, and that that would be to her credit. But certainly, certainly some non-binary people do care, and perhaps more importantly, um, many people. I mean, particularly in in universities or circles that I that I move in. Um, think that this is extremely important and um bend over i mean it's in a way it's very um very nice uh they they really do bend over backwards to use the appropriate pronouns when talking about the person in their absence uh, i think and, that's a that difference it's always which... struck me as very odd especially you know it's like we we, we might typically be talking about just some or perfectly ordinary feminine presenting woman. Yeah. Uh, and people will just, you know, correct you if you say she, her. It's like, it is the weirdest thing. It is it's, weird. It's a demonstration of righteousness, I I, I believe. Yeah, no, I, th I, I think, yeah, I think that is, yeah, I think that is right. Well, I think that's where sometimes, but, you know, I, academics can be somewhat divorced from how this stuff is trickling down into the rest of society. You know, like I think for Judith Butler, I think she's aware that this is a political posturing and she's thinking largely in terms of, of metaphor, but not realizing that kids are being taught this stuff and they're taking, especially those with say developmental disabilities and, and limited reasoning it's being packaged and sold to these young people as this is this is reality this is material reality and it's having an impact on their mental health in a way that it's not impacting judith butler because she's able as an adult to separate That's her right. political strategies from her own sense of this is how the world actually functions and my own lived reality and the yeah. damage she's doing to young people i don't think she realizes or has wrapped her head around yeah i mean of course uh, as soon as you get the idea that uh you know misgendering is one of the great um uh sins or insults or harms you can you can visit on another person then you know this just sets people who are who would, who are just naturally prone to anxiety uh up to feel even more anxious um and um you know become uh become less less confident and less able to shrug off um you know the vicissitudes of uh uh of, of life you're just making people much more much more sensitive and less able to cope with just ordinary existence um, when you give them this extra thing to be worried about and you you know you're essentially telling them well you know if you aren't offended when or mortally wounded when when someone uh, accidentally calls you he instead of they uh then you know there's something wrong with you the, in terms uh, of healthy healthy identity development requires a certain amount of structure and and a relationship with material realities 
I think the problem is that young people are developing identities based on queer theory, which is meant to be destabilizing. It's meant to be societally destabilizing. It's meant to blur structures. So I, I don't think it's possible to develop a strong, resilient identity based on Judith Butler's theories. They're, they're too slippery. There's no structure to be developed. Right. I think um, with the with the identities is that that um, that kind of sense of anxiety you're describing. I think I think that comes first. Um, it's sort of just like a generalized uh, anxiety that's kind of cultivated in in our in our uh, modern culture. And for a lot of people, I think ident like creating these identities um, that give them a source, a reason for their anxiety, a reason for their for their um, negative emotions. And so it's like it it becomes. Um, like rather than than one preceding the other, it's a, it's a case of this having this identity and being therefore um, victimized by other people's language is um, uh, you know it gives tangible reason for the for, for that anxiety um, and and exacerbates it. You know, it's a, a cycle like right. that. But I think right. it appeals to people who already feel um, uh, quite anxious um, but don't have a, a direct source for it. Right, right. I think that's right. Well, one uh, one last thing I wanted to uh, to talk with you about. You are obviously uh, married to uh, Carol Hooven, the author of uh, uh, the book on testosterone. And around the same time, because your book, so you're a professor at MIT. She's a professor, yeah. was a professor at Harvard. Obviously, she had a very negative experience there and had to resign, akin to um, what happened to Kathleen Stock. Um, what's been your experience? Like, so it sounds like your job, I and mean, you got the um, the ridiculous response from. Oxford University Press and whatnot, but as far as your your day job of teaching, what's the environment been like since publishing the book or since your other controversial articles, et cetera? Have you kind of gotten that kind of same Hooven stock treatment? Well, <laughs> yeah. So um so there is a difference between between Carol and me in that when 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 Carol was at Harvard, I mean she still remains there in some capacity. She's attached to Stephen Pinker's lab, but she doesn't have a paid job anymore. She wasn't actually a uh, a tenured faculty member. She was the co-director of undergraduate studies in human human evolutionary biology and a lecturer. So she 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 did not have um, the security of of tenure. Whereas I'm I'm tenured, so. Um, it's very, very difficult to 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 fire me. Not that Carol was fired, but she had a lot less job security. That's what I'm what I'm trying to say. Um, and yeah, the funny thing is that I I mean I think I've said many more outrageous things than Carol has said. I don't think Carol has uh, the, the Carol basically never said anything outrageous. I mean, the, the only thing that happened was that. She went on Fox and Friends and said, well, there are two sexes, but that doesn't prevent us from respecting everyone's gender identity. So <laughs> like, that was it. Um, but within the the philosophy profession, I've I've certainly said some some quite some quite uh controversial things. And things have been a little uh a little sticky at times, but um MIT is uh um 
is a pretty good place to be if you're some sort of dissident. I mean, after all, my own department, linguistics and philosophy, sheltered uh, what is who is probably America's most famous political dissident, uh, Noam Chomsky, for many years. Uh, not that I'm comparing myself to Chomsky, but um, uh, yeah, things have been things have been basically fine. I mean, we do have this. Um, this debate coming up at MIT with Aaron Kay <laughs> um, on whether sex is binary and whether uh, uh, gender identity should supplant um, sex in in social policy. That's organised by the the MIT Free Speech Association. So it's. Um, it's me and Holly Lawford Smith and Alice Drager and uh, Aaron Kay, and I'm very much looking forward to that. But uh, the fact that it, that that debate is being organised by the the MIT Free Speech Association, which is really an alumni-driven association, which was started when the geophysicist was started after the geophysicist Dorian Abbott's talk at MIT was cancelled because his views on DEI, this was a number of years ago, there was a huge fuss about that. Uh, so this alumni group started this, this free speech association. And the fact that this debate is taking place under the auspices of the free speech association should tell you something about the, uh, about the general climate. Uh, you know, you need some, um, some organization devoted to, uh, to free speech to put on to put on such a debate, whereas things were functioning as they as they should, no such association is need would be needed in order to, to put on this debate. It would just happen as a uh, as a matter of course. Um, Interesting to see what the reception to the debate is. If there is yeah. any pro protesting out out front, or well, yeah, any the problem pushback. is that we've. Um, I mean, it would have been nice to uh to get some people involved who um well for bond for for want of a better term uh, uh you know on the 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 trans rights activist side or in rate at the diametrically opposed pole to gender critical feminists and i think the free speech association tried to find these people but unsurprisingly no one was prepared to no one from that side was prepared to take part so there has been, yeah there has been so some, it's there just has to be a bunch of reasonable about that. people talking yeah. about these things yeah <laughs> <laughs> not not a huge amount of uh of fireworks still we might get protested that would be fun alice has heard some grumbling that we we are the that are that are speaking to the our side but it's like if no one else steps up to the plate then what what do you expect, right? If you want if you want your same, views to yeah. be represented, then you need to step up and and debate and defend them. Well, yes, of course. That yeah, that's right. I mean, that's that uh, is another hugely disappointing feature about this about these issues in that um, one side is um, um, very clearly. Uh, for no debate whatsoever. I mean, Stonewall in in, in the UK, you know, the the, um, the organization that was 
all for gay rights and then pivoted to to trans rights um i think they devised this slogan which was something like trans women and women there there is no debate so that's that's due to uh, to stonewall and you know maybe the earth is round there is no debate or um you know everyone is mortal there is no debate or something like that but that that clearly does not apply to to slogans like like trans women women which in my view is is like the worst political slogan anyone has 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 ever ever come up with it's like bizarre it's uh it's such a uh a, such a colossal mistake and it's it is it is just so unnecessary i mean i you know as far as i could see i mean you guys might have a different opinion but trans what trans rights were proceeding quite nicely until comparatively recently um without being hitched to controversial metaphysical claims like like trans women are women or or even you know Predictably, the activists didn't stop there, and trans women are female as well as, at least according to some, as well as uh, as well as being as well as being women. I mean, I remember when I was growing up in the UK in the seventies. You know, there was some prominent uh, trans. I mean, there were, of course, very very few of them, but there were some prominent trans women in the in the media, um, and uh for the most part they were they were treated with 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 great respect and not ridiculed and everyone naturally used feminine pronouns um and you know the the sort of metaphysical question of whether trans women are women or something didn't didn't really arise or enerate it certainly wasn't some sort of crucial uh claim that had to be in place before you uh you know could treat people respectfully or anything or anything like like that and uh and then we had that supreme court decision was that 2020 uh that made it illegal to fire people for being for being transgender um but anyway that um that supreme court uh, decision was uh secured without any you know metaphysical underpinning like trans women or women or anything like uh yeah. like that but then i don't know it it just seems to me that the the, the more extreme activists of like ruined things for a lot of trans people and <laughs> Yeah, I, I agree I with you. It's like, just my to... natural conservatism coming yeah. out. I, I always think, yeah, well, yeah, things were in this respect. Things were funnily enough. I, um, I mean, correct me if I'm correct if I'm wrong, or if you or if you disagree. But there, there is this, like, I think that in the case of trans rights, there is this sort of somewhat weird exception to the usual rule where. Um, typically, you know, back in the day, members of some minority group were, were generally treated worse or had it worse 
than they than they do today. I and mean, the obvious example is like is being gay. I mean, when I was when I was growing up, um, uh, you know, gay gay bashing was a thing. Being a gay man was um, uh, was uh, potentially much more threatening than it than it is today. Gay people were. Um, uh, nowhere near as out as they are today and they generally generally kept a kept a low profile but at least in some respects um like um uh trans people were treated with much more respect and common decency back in the day than than some of them some of them are now you know I remember in the early 2000s, trans men being quite prominent in trans activism as well. And and that's something that's changed over the last couple of decades is um, really the sidelining of, of trans men in the conversation. So why, why, why is that? Um, I think... I think probably because, I mean, back in the day, the only the only women that were transitioning were butch lesbians. And I don't, as radical feminists and trans women, buttheads, it really, trans women did not, did not want trans men around who brought in lesbian and feminist sensibilities into the politics. I think they saw us as very much getting in the way of, of their own advancement. And I mean, I, I've known trans men who have tried to get involved in, activist groups and they're told well no we want to prioritize the you know using air quotes we want to prioritize the, the the women's voices and we're not looking for any trans male trans man input um so we're we're often not even allowed to join various organizations to to lobby and advocate for ourselves and that's been the case for for decades right i mean i suppose that there's there's an an asymmetry in that um there's a, there's, there always was a, again, correct me if I'm wrong, a sort of natural like alliance between trans men and lesbians, in particular butch lesbians, and you know people recognise that the one sort of seamlessly blended into the other, and it's like no no big deal really whether you were on one side or or another, but in the case of 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 trans women, um, at least in the case of of tra trans women who transition because of autogynophilia, there is no um, kind of natural cis community to to ally yourself with. So you would probably resent if you were a, a autogynophilic trans woman the sort of natural alliance between tra trans men and and butch lesbians. Good point. Yeah, because in the past they typically went from just being regular old straight men with families, etc., to being, you know, yeah, trans right. women. And yeah, it's, yeah, it's not. It's that contrast is much starker than the yeah butch lesbian to FTM transition. Yeah, no, yeah, 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 that's that right. That's long. right. That's right. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Alex. It's been a pleasure oh, talking well, to thank you. Thank you very well, much. It's been a total pleasure. Uh, well, well link uh, yeah, keep book. up, keep up the good work. I really, I, I will continue learning from the pod and Aaron Kay. I very much look 
forward to seeing you in April. Um, you're not going to come down R&T, I suppose. I'm not, no, but I will definitely tune in, that's for sure. Okay, excellent. All right. Well, I look forward to it. Thanks, Alex. Okay, thanks a lot. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Transparency Podcast. If you enjoy our content, please help out our algorithm by hitting like or subscribe. If you'd like to make a donation, follow the link to our PayPal account. On behalf of the Gender Dysphoria Alliance, thanks for your support.